0: As the war in Ukraine rages on, a lot of attention has been paid to how China is reacting to what is unfolding. What is China's relationship with Russia? How much influence could China have on how things play out? We wanted to talk more about this, so we caught up with Dr. Rudra Sill. He is a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, also the School of Arts and Sciences Faculty Director for the Huntsman Program in International Studies and Business. So to start, before we kind of dig into life in this war, what was the prior to the invasion of Ukraine? What kind of was the relationship between Russia and China?
1: I think Russia and China were beginning to cooperate and get close for quite some time. Uh, It's been several layers of this going on since the end of the Cold War. Uh, I think after the Cold War, once it became kind of clear that the United States had its own vision for a new world order and how that order should be shaped. Uh, And once it became clear that maybe China and Russia are not exactly equal partners in that process, uh, I think you already started to see a little bit of cooperation uh, step up. And I'm going all the way back to the war on Kosovo, which was uh, carried out by NATO in 1999. Um, That was a time when the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was bombed, accidentally probably, but uh, uh, it was a moment, I think, where NATO's Uh, actions, uh, being unilateral, really not involving consultation with Russia or China, was a moment where Russia felt particularly impotent and weak and China felt basically ignored. And I think at that point you started to see a little bit more cooperation. But it was still very tactical. Um, I think as we go forward uh, into the early 21st century with the Iraq invasion and I think especially the actions on Libya were a major turning point. Uh, What happened in Libya in 2012 was that Russia and China for a few times actually supported uh, the other powers of the Security Council, the other permanent members, and they all agreed on a no-fly zone being implemented, even supported uh, by NATO in Libya at the time that the civil war was going on. Qaddafi uh, was still in power at that moment. Um, and as a result of that re- resolution, it felt like there was going to be more cooperation between the West and Russia and China, but instead what happened was NATO sort of took charge of the process. and Uh, got directly involved in going after one side of the civil war and supporting the other side of the civil war and really kind of shaped the outcome directly in a way that would well beyond just protecting um, civilian enclaves as the resolution was meant to do. And at that point, uh, even without hearing a word from either Moscow or Beijing, I was already thinking, "Hmm, this is not going to sit well. This is not exactly what they signed up for. And sure enough, it became a very important talking point Uh, More so explicitly in Moscow, but also in Beijing, the idea that at the end of the day, NATO is doing what it's going to do. Um, And so our efforts to kind of collaborate didn't make us partners anyway. So I think 2012 marks a bit of a turning point. I skipped over one important event, I think, that we have not paid sufficient attention to um, in between these two moments, the Kosovo moment and the Libya moment, and that's Putin's speech. Vladimir Putin gave a speech in 2007 in Munich. Uh, which is well known and uh, often cited, where he kind of laid out his problems with the way the world order was being constructed. And he was specifically mentioning NATO's tendency to go on on its own, be unilateral, be an expression of what he called U.S. hyperpower. He resisted the idea that the U.S. had an exceptional role to play. So you could already start seeing that there was this notion of resistance, but he was also admitting that Russia was not powerful enough to go back to the days of balance of power politics of the Cold War, Uh, the US was by far the much more powerful country. He was admitting all of that, but signaling that together with other powers, they could balance this and make this a little safer. In his mind, and it was not just in his mind, many international relations scholars feel what is called a unipolar world, uh, a world in which there's one powerful hegemon, one powerful country that is shaping, shaping the sort of rules of the game it can be stable, other people think that's highly unstable. Uh, It's a legitimate debate that's been around. We had conferences here about the unipolar moment. Interestingly, Putin was taking his own side on that debate, which is that unipolar politics is dangerous. A single country and its allies shaping outcomes from Afghanistan to Iraq. Uh, At that point, Libya hadn't even happened. Um, This is uh, a sign that things are getting more unstable. There's no one to check that kind of power, no one to kind of question or critique or challenge that. And so we need to go back to a more balanced world, where there is a balance of power, uh, logic. Uh, he's, you know, he's expressing what is well-known in international relationship circles as realist thinking, something we identify with Henry Kissinger, George Kennan, um, you know, well-known figures in American foreign policy. So it's not like a Russian perspective, but it was a realist perspective. And in it, you could hear that there was talk of Russia not being able to do this alone, And though China was not mentioned, it was pretty obvious that that's the elephant in the room there. And he was thinking about Russian-Chinese collaboration. So I would say those are three steps along the way. You had the Kosovo event, you had the 2007 speech signaling strongly, not just to the West, but to China, that, hey, we're here, we're willing to work with you. And then 2012, as a real consolidation of that uh, in terms of what was going on, following that, when Ukraine's conflict became more and more complicated, Russia was heavily involved in that in one form or another. Um, during that time, all the sanctions that were levied on, on uh, Russia, uh, especially after the annexation of Crimea, it became pretty clear that they have to diversify their, uh, their sources of income, their economic activities, and especially their energy uh, exports. Most of the, the sort of Russian-European connection is well known. of Europe's gas market is supplied by Russia. We know that side of the story. But Russia also needed to keep exporting. And even without the sanctions, it was pretty clear if you look ahead that Europe's energy demand was going to flatten, maybe go down as there were more efforts at creating green sources of energy. So even absent the sanctions, even absent the geopolitics, there was a longer term vision that really the demand is now going to come from the places where manufacturing is growing, not where manufacturing is shrinking, Uh, the places where they still value cheap fossil fuels. Where is that? China, India, and uh, many other parts of the developing world. So that was already beginning to take shape. But the sanctions sped that process up. What might've taken another decade maybe, or at least several years, uh, it sped things up so that Russia and China started working on these deals. There were some initial disagreements But after the sanctions were slapped, Russia basically backed away from its harder positions on bargaining. And so they were able to sign this 30-year deal uh, between Russia and Chinese energy companies to supply huge amounts of gas. It was a a multi prong agreement. It even included space for the Chinese to have access to coal mines on Russian territory in the Far East, in the Siberian areas. So I think this is a multi prong agreement. And I think a lot of people have been talking about, you know, the Moscow Beijing axis. Whether or not, uh, how how friendly are they really? They're, you know, are they brothers in arms against Washington? I mean, they have tactical reasons. So a lot of people are saying, yeah, it's just tactical. It's momentary. It can be exploited. Um, and I would say I agree to the point that these are not brothers in arms. These are not long-lasting friends. However, the interdependence was much more sustainable now because of that energy factor, because of that energy deal. When you sign a 30 year pact, you're not thinking of that as just a tactical momentary move. Uh, So I think this longer term vision, this longer term realization that China's going to keep needing uh, oil and gas. It has some of its own, but it's always going to keep importing. And the place that is exporting a lot is Russia. And so I think this energy deal to me, signaled uh, a, a new level of Russian Chinese cooperation. Um, that I think could be adapted. And I, and I think you're seeing that now in the middle of the Ukraine war in terms of China's uh, posturing on, you know, when to, you know, push uh, on Putin, when to back off and mostly to back off.
0: As a layman, I feel like China is kind of it seems like there are some talking points that they are mimicking or they are pushing that are pro Putin or the pro the, the Russian uh, looking at this through the Russian lens. Then there are other ways you kind of feel like they're kind of standing back. What have you seen, you know, as someone who studies this, follows this, what have you seen, you know, we're now a month into this war from how China has positioned itself so far?
1: Let me break that into two parts. One part I think is more general. And I think the way the war is being framed here in terms of its causes and in terms of uh, assigning responsibility the way we're talking about it is actually uh, at odds with what we're seeing in a lot of the developing world, despite the U.N. General Assembly resolution, where we you know, got the votes by cajoling people. The, the, the natural momentum was not really there. Uh, if you go to you know, capital cities in Africa, if you go to New Delhi in India, uh, you're going to hear a different kind of narrative. And it's not like, you know. Putin is great. It's, it's it's simply that this is a complicated war. It has complicated roots. It has different hands that got involved, bloodied at different points, and now it's come to this. Um, but they're also hearing a little bit of the fact of you know sort of you know the U.S. has not exactly been free of getting involved in bombing campaigns far away from land. Uh So there's a certain reaction to that. Sort of the same kinds of things that Putin might have been talking about in 2007. That's in the in the consciousness. Uh, It's when you're a powerful country people notice you know how much power you have and so i think there has been a little bit more patience with russia's behavior in general in the non-western world um and at least even if they're voting for a resolution there's a question of how intensely opposed they are there's no cancel culture going on there as we're seeing around us here there's no one pouring vodka down the drain or canceling russian conductors in one case, uh, almost laughable, one uh, a Welsh orchestra actually took Tchaikovsky off the program. Tchaikovsky, you know, has been long dead, um, but taking composers, dead composers off the program. But you're not seeing anything like that type of momentum anywhere in the developing world. So some of that, what we're seeing in China, is comparable to elsewhere. But now the second dimension is the strategic dimension. What is China thinking? Well, well there is... A lot of discussion about the parallel to Taiwan, and is this sort of like a, you know, a, an awareness that if the U.S. starts, you know, interfering in Taiwanese politics, pushing the more pro independent side perhaps uh, against the one-China narrative, then you could see they could almost understand the Putin read on what happened in Ukraine that there were different. It was a diverse country; they had different sides. It was kind of polarized, and then, and then the U.S. involvement pushed one side, you know, at the expense of the other. Uh, in what Putin thinks of as a coup uh, that was carried out, and it's an interpretation that I think the Chinese could readily imagine when they start, you know, replacing Taiwan there. But do they think that the, you know, there's going to be the same type of conflict? Are they wanting to get involved in the conflict? Are they wanting to invade Taiwan right now? No. I've, I've, Of course not. Uh, But they can imagine the scenario mapping onto their coast uh, relatively easily, minus NATO, minus Europe right next to it. Geographically, it's it's a different ballgame. But in terms of the sense that the U.S. has a... Role to play in terms of political connections with something right along their coastline, a country that is very important in terms of thinking about their own national identity as One China. You know, you can almost imagine Putin's speech about Ukraine and Russia being like a One Russia speech, right? There are elements that you can recognize as sort of a reaction to the West. Um, so I think there is something that China is more specifically concerned about in terms of simply joining the Western um, bandwagon, but there's also it's personal interest. Um, it sees opportunities here to lock in even more you know, economically uh, viable deals on long-term energy supplies. You know, Germany just voted down to cancel Nord Stream 2. I mean, the writing is on the wall. Even if things get settled tomorrow, there's going to be a lasting consequence in terms of um, energy, the energy deal. So China sees opportunities here. Um, China also sees a lot of uh, interesting uh, opportunities for you know, expanding its trading position uh, as a result of the economic difficulties that the West is also experiencing, right? When you apply sanctions, you're, you're going to have some economic blowback, and we're seeing that in our inflation rate and our gas prices. Um, and even if we are willing to take that on, it does give China certain advantages. So they see an opportunity here. Um, I was thinking early on in the game, and this is getting really into the weeds if you want to go there, uh, but I was thinking, what are the conditions under which China might kind of put pressure on Putin to end this quickly. And I think they are putting some pressure. They don't want this lasting. It doesn't help them at, at all uh, uh, in terms of their trading routes. Um, and I'm here referring to what is known as the Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. It's something China designed a while back to support its economic activities. It was already a trading giant. It's shipping it's controlled world shipping. Um, but along with that, they had created this map of, of you know, kind of imagining a a modern day Silk Road with multiple avenues with the waterway going around Sri Lanka towards uh, East Africa, and a a roadway going across the old Silk Road, crossing into Kazakhstan, Central Asia, shifting northward into Russia, through Russia, uh, and into Europe, into Eastern Europe. Um, That route was something they were thinking of as a rapid movement of Chinese goods or goods from Southeast Asia all the way to Europe. China would be the one sort of managing this massive infrastructure Uh, for all of Eurasia, um, not just the waterways to Africa, but this land route through Russia, through the former Soviet space into Eastern Europe, into Europe. Uh, So that was a big part of the calculation. And I was thinking, how does this play with the idea that there's a war that's going to essentially block this traffic? There's a railroad that goes from Russia to Belarus to Poland. That railroad was part of this mapping that they were thinking in terms of infrastructure um and well if there's a war going on that prevents the goods from moving through that border we are talking about a potential block on the plan so i was wondering at what point does this in? but then as this kept going I, I started to think about some other issues that i've been doing research on and whether these should be kind of pulled into the story as well um and that's the because of the blowback on Belt and Road, there's been a lot of political narratives about whether China is, this is a sort of empire building strategy or making poor developing countries dependent on it for potentially taking on these unpayable loans. So there's been a negative uh, public relations aspect to this. So they've been actually talking a little bit less about Belt and Road. In the meantime, the environmental story has been changing. Now you're wondering, what am I doing? The environmental change has to do with the Arctic. The Arctic is warming up, it's melting, the waterways there are expanding. So China has been talking more and more about the Polar Silk Road. And Russia doesn't like the label because Silk Road suggests sort of a Chinese ownership of it, when in fact the waterway goes mostly along the Russian Northern coast. But this has been something that has been you know, off most people's radars, except those who are really focused on the Arctic or the Russian uh, um, sort of climate change movement, things like that. There is talk of that in those communities. Uh, but there's also talk about that in China. They've been investing in icebreakers, not to go you know, across land, not to go to Africa. Those icebreakers are for going around the Arctic. So I am thinking that if China is thinking long term and has maybe made some different calculations now about the original Belt and Road plan and now adding this Polar Silk Road, the country that they need most for that Polar Silk Road to work is Russia. That's where you're going to get servicing of the shipping going through. That's where you're going to get security provided. Uh, Even though there are many countries that uh, are within the Arctic circle, it's Russia that has the longest coastline there. And uh, so I think um, this is purely speculation at this point, but it's informed speculation because I have seen these conversations going on. The question is, are they adding it up as explicitly as I'm suggesting? I'm not 100% sure about that. But from a logical standpoint, it seems that the pullback from the Belt and Road discourse and the talking up of the Polar Silk Road uh, it does seem to have a connection to why they might actually have a strategic reason for backing Russia, not just sort of this more general sense that the West is dominating and we have to kind of hold our own, and they don't always understand what's going on in our borderlands, but seem to want to influence everything. That's that's there, and that's all that's been there for a while. But China is not a country that easily lets its own interests be cast aside, and I don't think there will be absorbing a lot of costs to back Putin. So that's why I was thinking, what are the benefits that it could imagine? Energy, cheap, long-term energy is one. And in terms of the movement of Chinese goods, where I was thinking Belt and Road is perhaps a reason they might put pressure on Putin, thinking about the longer term as involving more Arctic waterways, Arctic trading routes, that shifts things back in the direction of cooperating with Russia. Uh, so those are the thoughts that I've been having in my head. sort of not 100% sure about the calculus, but certainly these are all things that are interconnected. And I think once you're aware of these conversations going on, it's hard not to think about whether these, how they connect to each other. So that's at least one sort of ideas.
0: I'm curious, given all that, things in this war at this point, as we're talking, uh, you know, March 22nd, do not seem to be going well. For Russia, at least as how this was laid out as a lot of the the pundits and the experts thought it was going to go. Uh, It's actually going quite bad for Russia, and I don't want to imply that it's going great for Ukraine, obviously. It's a tragedy. But could there be a certain point where the calculus shifts and things are going really badly for Russia, Russia gets more and more desperate, where you could hear China start to loudly and publicly start to condemn Russia? Do you, is there, I don't want to say a red line, but is there a point you think where we could see that? I don't think you're going to see
1: a public condemnation. The question is whether or not you're going to see behind the scenes pressure uh, on Moscow saying, wrap this up quickly. Uh, this is not helping any of us. And uh, you know now it's beginning to hurt our interests. So there is a tipping point from China's point of view, where right now they're kind of benefiting from the situation uh, economically speaking. I mean, they don't necessarily—I'm not saying they're embracing the war, but they're—they're they're seeing certain advantages. While you know the Western economies are also kind of dealing with some backlash um, in terms of their economic uh, situations, the inflation rates, and so on, they see opportunities. But at some point, that's going to tip, and if they start feeling that like this is not, you know, the, that the Russian Performance in Ukraine or its actions in Ukraine is actually coming back to negatively uh, impact China's interests. I can see them being much more active and using their economic leverage because that's that's what uh, you know allowed Russia to imagine surviving with these what Biden called the mother of all sanctions, uh, and it is a massive, you know, unprecedented level of sanctions, and it, and it has a spontaneous component to it as well as corporations are on their own. Pulling out in ways that are not officially required. Uh, so, this is a really huge thing. So, there was some miscalculation there, but throughout it all, there was the sense that the world has shifted. China is now a big player. And so, as long as there's that connection, so I think China is in a position to be able to quietly say, well, our support is not unlimited, uh, and I can imagine getting to that point. Now, whether or not this is because the Russians are underperforming—that's a—that's a different question, uh, and that requires thinking about what the Russian goals were. If this were a, if this were a Chechnya situation, you'd be seeing a lot more widespread aerial bombardment. It's been, even though we're seeing, you know, on the news images that are, you know over and over it's very specific images there we're not quite this is, this does not seem to be the entire russian air force just trying to reduce the space to rubble um i've seen people mention aleppo and chechnya as sort of examples of what we might see in ukraine the main reason i don't think that's the case isn't because russia is you know holding back out of altruism but they have defined this as a war about identity as a war about ukrainian russian sameness about saving that sameness you can't really have an all-out aerial blitz uh, when that's your goal. You know, it's one thing when you think of Chechnya as heavily concentrated with terrorists um, that are totally different and are trying to, you know, uh, you can identify that there's very little gap between the civilians and enemies. In Ukraine, the situation is being defined, and Moscow has been defined for seven, eight years as one in which um, there are like-minded people who speak the same language, ethnic Russians, um, who li- who live in many of the cities? So it is really, I think, a very different kind of operation. I wouldn't say, you know, I, I wouldn't say limited because it's a lot that's been invested in this. Huge costs, huge costs to Russian soldiers, Russia, the Russian economy, a young generation of Russians. So it's a pretty intense move. Um, however, it's being conducted in a in a rather odd way uh, with very specific cities that are being focused on. These are the cities that are primarily. Um, yeah. And the further east you go, the more you see ethnic Russians in the Donbass, for example. Uh, but in cities like Mariupol, Odessa, it's a little bit more uh, balanced, less fewer ethnic Russians, certainly many pro-Russian speakers. Politically speaking, they would have identified with other parties in the east in terms of the old days of political maneuvering. But And, and now it's unclear whether they, uh, you know, I think Putin did miscalculate in terms of embrace uh, you know people embracing uh, the arrival of russian troops as liberators uh i mean it was interesting to see the parallels between when we entered mosul and southern iraq and we're expecting the hearts and to win the hearts and minds it, it, sometimes these narratives you know are like Kool-Aid, that you drink yourself and you believe it and you want it to happen. It took us a while to realize that wasn't the case in either Afghanistan or Iraq. And the Russians are realizing that even in Ukraine, where there is a sort of historical cultural tie, at least to the Eastern part of Ukraine, uh, that part is real. There is a sort of, that's that's the part that was part of the Russian empire. That's the part where ethnic Russians moved from the core to go and settle in larger numbers. you can't really go and be protecting them and bombing them at the same time. Uh, So there is a sort of restrained attempt. Uh, Having said that, what we're seeing right now and makes it look like it's kind of a stalemate is the city of Mariupol. That's an especially important point because this is where uh, one component of the Ukrainian military, uh, especially this Azov Battalion, which is very fierce, very intense, um, no holds barred. deeply anti-Russian have always been. It's, it's sort of the defining identity. Uh, and they are identified with fascist groups, Nazi groups, and uh, celebrate you know, individuals as national heroes who collaborate with the Nazis. Whether that's justifiable or not in the you know, more messy geopolitics of this area uh, in post-communist countries um, and with this worry about Russia, you know that's for people to judge on their own. But it's a very, it's not the original professional Ukrainian army. This is a, a, a very well-armed, fairly sizable group of people that took it upon themselves to be on the front lines uh, against the Donbas all these years. Um, they have been the ones that I would say kept Zelensky from moving forward on his campaign promise to resolve the Donbass issue diplomatically, to restore better relations with neighbors, meaning Russia. That was, the, that was his campaign slogan in 2019, but there was no way to move forward because of these, these powerful forces. Whether you want to call them Nazis or fascists, Putin certainly likes to call them Nazis all the time and inflates their representation in the public. But as a fighting force, they're very, very intense. And it's Mariupol that they've been using as the headquarters. So they're not abandoning that without a massive fight. And that fight includes public relations. It includes trying to signify or or, expand the narrative of war crimes. We've seen that uh, the actual truth we will someday find out, but that right now there's a battle for public opinion going on that is raging fiercely on both sides. We're not seeing the Russian side of it. The Russians are seeing some of our side of it because the internet is still freely moving. Um, so there are images and stories and uh, Western news reports that are flowing into Russia. Um, but it's a, it's a much messier story than any of us are aware of on the ground. Uh, interviews with evacuees are reporting, you know, all kinds of atrocities on both sides, but certainly the ones that we don't hear about. Um, so I think the story of Mariupol should not be conflated with success or failure of the overall mission because we don't really know what that mission is. It's certainly Putin has said over and over, we don't want to occupy all of Ukraine. We don't want to divide Ukraine. Uh, so it's very much occurring along a band of these cities along the coast of the south. And along these northern cities, from Kiev, Kharkiv, on the north, and uh, the idea is that if you take those main population centers, you're basically got, you know, you've you've done the job. Um, and their goal is to quote-unquote demilitarize uh, Ukraine. Uh, that means just weakening Ukraine's fighting capacity. Uh, of course, it's a silly goal if you 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 just reduce fighting capacity and the next thing you know is a bunch of western arms show up with more western advisors and trainers what have you really gained so i think that part of the calculation was was completely silly uh, on the side of uh, the kremlin you weaken someone 10 years later they're back to full strength or even stronger uh, they don't have to join nato to get western arms uh, and so i think these types of uh, calculations may not have really been thought through too carefully the Western sanctions weren't thought through too carefully, uh, the extent to which um, even sympathizers who, ha- who have families in Russia and felt close to Russia, that they would welcome military intervention. I mean, no one wants to hear jets screaming over overhead and missiles flying by your house, even if it's to liberate you, in, uh, especially seven years later. In 2015, there was a war going on. Um, some people will say what's going on now is, you know, the war was on pause and now the Fingers been lifted from the pause button um that is certainly one interpretation that is not entirely inaccurate uh, but in those seven years lots of people have also just gotten used to going about their lives sending their kids to school just you know going to their jobs and having your everyday life disrupted in the name of this temporary you know um, liberation doesn't really do much so i think putin is finding out that all the people expected to be rushing onto the streets to embrace the Russian arrival. Uh, I think some people are happy. Uh, Don't get me wrong, there are probably people who are welcoming this, but it's not at all close to the scale that was expected. Uh, So those are all miscalculations. The one thing that he seems to have calculated correctly is going back to our original starting point, China. Uh, that China would uh, this I, I believe this has been explicitly discussed beforehand in terms of what China would would do or not do. I don't know if it went as far as you know the Chinese telling the Russians to hold off until the Olympics were over, as some people have claimed. That might be going a little too far, but I, I have little doubt that you know Putin and she um, were on the same page before the order to invade was was given. Uh, so that calculation so far seems to be. Accurate. The one calculation that I think is on on target.
0: I know President Xi and President Biden had a I think it was a two hour call uh, last week. There was a lot of attention on it. Uh, you know, the readouts. President Biden kind of warned Xi about uh, helping, outwardly helping Russia, and that there would be consequences and stuff like that. How much is it worth to China to weaken or harm? Specifically, I guess, economic relations with the U.S., which most of this would happen uh, to kind of maintain their relationship with Russia. We talked about kind of a, a, a push-pull or a, a line with, you know, if the things continue to go badly in Ukraine. But from this standpoint, do, um, is there a calculus, you think, where we can handle this much of blowback, economic blowback from the U.S. But if it hits here, all right, now it's getting serious and we've got to rethink.
1: China is a very practical country. Um, They've rarely done things to shoot themselves in the foot. Um, So I think there is some pressure that the U.S. can exert in economic terms. Uh, But China is also a strategic thinker and the kind of things go back and forth a little bit. The U.S. is already kind of having to absorb some of the costs. Biden keeps saying imposing costs on this type of war is going to require sacrifices. And we're good at sacrifices in the short term unless the threat is directly at home. Um, And China might be thinking that, you know, know, the blowback will go even more severe from the U.S. attempting to impose sanctions. It would hurt them in the short term. But the U.S., you know is in a position also to further complicate matters. Uh, And we have to be doing something that Russia and China have to worry a little bit less about, which is thinking about election results. And when election time comes several months down the line, it's not the images of the Donbass that people will be thinking about, or the images of Mariupol, they'll be thinking about the inflation rate, they'll be thinking about job stability and things like that. And so our own sort of politics is is part of the calculation. Are the Chinese thinking all this through? I, I don't know. Um, but I also am fairly certain that military support for Russia is not in the books. The Chinese have given Russia all kinds of other support, you know, support the UN, support on uh, energy deals, uh, financial support, bypass SWIFT. Uh, there's a you know Union Bank based in Hong Kong is providing financial services. So those are all practical things that the Chinese I can see doing. But getting militarily involved is not in the cards. They've been very careful about that. Um, they they want to be seen as potent and capable of being uh, militarily effective, but they, unlike Russia, they haven't gone out into various adventures to show that. Um, and so I don't think this is gonna be a case where you're gonna see a whole lot of collaboration. Um, there might be things like the Chinese buying Russian arms, a uh, good deal. Uh, India is certainly continuing to do that. Um, Biden has also mentioned sanctions on India for that reason. Um, but you know, by the time you're done sanctioning in so many of the top 10 world economies, uh, you know, what have you done to the entire world economy's long-term future? So I think we have to be a little bit careful about how our sanctioning policies are, are being seen with an eye to the long-term. Uh, for example, I can imagine lots of wealthy people now realizing that it's really hard, very dangerous to leave your money in New York you know, or, or London or Paris. I mean, maybe China, that's the safer haven for, for your money. Certainly, many of the Russian oligarchs thought so even the Russian state sovereign fund, you know, cut out a lot of, its, uh, lot of the money. Um, we still, They still left half of it in the West, but uh, um, I think this notion that sanctions don't require UN discussion, they don't go to the Security Council, this is simply the largest economy in the world saying, no, we're cutting you off, um, we're freezing your assets. It, it does make things very, very different. If you think about post-World War II, what made the US dollar so special, what made the US economy so special, was the sense that we protected people's private property. Now, whatever the sins of the other, other countries might be and their leaders might be, ordinary people, rich, poor, are, are basically feeling this the impact and they're watching sanctions being slapped on left and right. Every year there's a new round of sanctions are applied. Um, and the, the Chinese are noticing, they haven't been victimized directly, but they're recognizing this is a tool now of geopolitics. And so everyone has to kind of take note of that and uh, guard against that. The Russians have been guarding against that, they think, by talk- talking about sanctions proofing their economy. I think, again, they miscalculated, but it's not like they were out- caught by surprise either. They knew most the official sanctions that were coming down the pike. And the Chinese, I- I'm sure, have been paying attention. Um, so yes, they don't wanna get into an economic war with the United States. But they will also say that they kind of have been in an economic competition with the United States. It's for you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that uh, Trump and Hillary both officially said they were opposed to the 2016 elections. Um, that was designed specifically to keep China out and to create an alternative set of Asian economic relationships and trading arrangements that would uh, compete with the, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, So the Chinese do not see the US strictly in terms of, hey, you know, this is great, economic interdependence, we both benefit. That used to be much more the case uh, until maybe 10 years ago when it became much more competitive. Um, And now that competitive angle is is very much being buttressed by some of the geopolitical forces at work. Uh, So it's not as simple as in the past where I think the Chinese would have been out, we don't want to lose the US trading relationship. Now it's kind of clear that the US is competing and trying to block your trading routes, trying to take over your trading partners. So if it becomes, if it goes down that path, you don't want to be in the position of continually, uh, you know, exceeding to U.S. demands out of threat of sanctions. It also is not uh, great powers or aspiring great powers don't like to think like that, right? That, you know, maybe a small country will say, yes, we accept conditions for these big loans, the World Bank or IMF, but are Russia or China have their own self-image as deserving uh, in a place the sort of table of great powers, if you want to call it that. Um, and they have a hard time, you know, backing down in the face of US threats. Uh, and I think if something happens, it'll be more in the realm of things we don't really hear about. It'll be backdoor deals. Uh, I suspect if Biden wants to cajole the Chinese, he'll want to do so with more of the sanctions, he'll have to provide some carrots, a mix of carrots and sticks, not just sticks. Uh, and if that happens, we're not going to hear about it because Biden is not going to. A lot of, a lot of the interesting things happen in the world we, we will never hear about. The Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the part of the solution to that was the U.S. agreeing to move its missiles from Turkey, but because it was not great for public relations in the U.S. for Kennedy, that part was never revealed. And, you know, until decades later when more memoirs were available. Uh, so similarly, I think if the U.S. is able to bring some pressure to bear on China to adjust its thinking on on Russia and Ukraine, I suspect it'll be a mix of carrots and sticks and we will probably not hear too much about the carrots. Uh, But a lot of this is, you know, again, I I don't know what to call this. It's not random speculation, uh, but nor is it, you know, evidence-based, you know, theoretical argument of, you know, with with a lot of confidence. It's basically an informed guess as to when you try to put these different connections together, what kind of uh, complex picture do you get?
0: That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.